might never have entered a courtroom in this world. But you'll still stand before a judge in the next. And his verdict will be enforced for all eternity. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah identifies two very different judgments presided over by Jesus himself. One triumphant and one tragic. From Signs, here's David to introduce today's thought-provoking message, The Judge. And thank you for joining us. We're in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. I mentioned to you yesterday that in the future there are two judgments. After the rapture, when we get to heaven as believers, we will come before the judgment seat of Christ. There we will be judged for the works done in the body, not for our sin. Once you become a Christian, you are never judged for your sin again because Jesus judged your sin on the cross and he paid for it once and for all. But you will stand before the Lord to give an account of how you lived your Christian life and whether or not you were um, efficient in following the Lord. And and uh, that's a judgment that every believer will participate in. But there will be no unbelievers there. Then seven years later, at the end of the tribulation period, there's another judgment. This is called the Great White Throne Judgment. And this is where everyone who has denied Christ through his life, all those who have refused to accept him as their Savior, all the unsaved will stand before the Lord Jesus, and they will be judged for their sins, and they will hear him say, Depart from me, I never knew you. No one who stands before the white throne judgment will come out um, innocent. All will be judged guilty because they have refused to receive the opportunity of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the judgment we're going to look at today. It's pretty sobering, but it's also very interesting. So open your Bible, open your heart, and be ready to follow us as we begin this two-day discussion. Hey, I want you to come to Alaska with us, and uh, the time is kind of like the room with the walls that close in on you. Uh, Little by little, uh, the time goes away, and it's not just okay, you have until July to do this because you don't. Before July comes, we will be told that our rooms are gone. So you need to make your reservation to come with us if you're planning to come with us. July 16th through the 23rd, we are going to Alaska. We'll be visiting the beautiful uh, glaciers and the mountains that surround the sea and all of the beautiful little um, venues where we stop. We We'll be in Ketchikan, and we'll be in Juneau, and uh, these are just great places. Friends, I have been here 30-plus times, and you would think I would never want to go again having been there that many times. When COVID came and we couldn't go, it was like something was missing in my life. It's a part of the rhythm of who I am as a person. I love Alaska. And there's something about it that just settles you down and makes you realize how blessed you are to be a follower of God who created the beauty we know as Alaska. You can come. There's still room, but you need to to get busy making your plans and making your reservations. Find out all about it at davidjeremiah.org. Okay, here's part one of The Judge. Morgan Wilson had his four-foot putt lined up perfectly. He was about to tap the ball in the hole when he suddenly clutched his chest and collapsed onto the green. The panicked voices of his buddies faded away as he felt himself traveling through a dark tunnel. And then all at once he was in a mode of existence unlike anything he'd ever experienced on earth. 
unknown to him, he was in Hades, the abode of the wicked, as they await the day of judgment. There were many other souls around him. More continued to flock in. Their bodies were like his own, wispy and insubstantial, but with all senses intact. At one end of the room, guarding a massive door, stood a man-like figure who was so bright that Morgan could hardly look at him. One by one, the waiting souls were called to the door, and when Morgan's turn came, he passed through the door, and what he saw took his breath away. His eyes strained to take in the otherworldly beauty and majesty. Directly before him towered a great white throne. He looked into the face of the one sitting on it, and he was undone. The face radiated pure love and infinite sorrow. In that instant, Morgan realized that this face, this being, had somehow always been the reality behind every longing that he had ever had. The man's hands were scarred as if they had been impaled by some sharp instrument. With a stab of fear, Morgan realized that he was in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Panic welled up in him as he reflected on his earthly life, which had not always been what it ought to have been. In a rich, pure voice, Christ called Morgan by name. Morgan was drawn forward like a magnet. For the first time, he noticed that there were some books stacked on a table beside the throne. Jesus Christ picked up the first one, and Morgan got a glimpse of its title, The Book of the Law. Christ opened the book and placed it on his lap. Morgan Wilson, he said, what do you have to say regarding your life on earth? In spite of his trembling, Morgan found his voice. Well, uh, I, I tried my best to obey your laws, and when I think of other people I know, I think I did better than most. Very well. Since you expect to be saved by your good works, let's consider what that requires. Looking at the book, Christ reviewed aloud each point of the law, and Lynn looked at Morgan. Have you done all these things? Well, not perfectly, of course, but I think the good outweighs the bad. Well, I'm afraid that's not good enough, Christ said. If you base your salvation on the law, you must keep all the law, obeying every single point without fail. But if that's the case, who can be saved? Morgan said. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short. You are exactly right, said the Lord Jesus. And that's why I died for you. I never sinned. I took the penalty for your sin in order to free you from it. He closed the book of the law and picked up the next volume, Morgan Wilson's Book of Works. As he opened it, Morgan's fear began to ease. I mean, he had done many good works. And he felt sure the Lord would really be impressed. It says here that you gave $1,000 to your church's new building fund. That's right, Morgan said. And I set an example by being the first one to do it. I also did many other good things. I was a deacon in my church. I occasionally taught Sunday school. I never missed a church service, even on Wednesday. And I seldom fell asleep during the sermons. <laughs> yes, all these things are recorded here. But it's also recorded that you made sure all of these things were visible to other people. You did it for them. Suddenly, Morgan felt exposed. 
he could muster no response. Christ closed the book and reached for the next one, Morgan Wilson's Book of Secrets. You've got a lot of entries in this book, Morgan, Christ said. Let's look at some of the things you did in secret. It says here that many of your customers paid you in cash, and you reported none of those payments to the IRS. You also reported business losses you did not incur and inflated the amount of your charitable gifts. You cheated on your income tax, and according to these records, you did it every single year. It says here you visited the internet porn sites late at night. And to top it off, these records indicate that you had a long-running affair with a woman in your church. None of these deeds were ever found out, and since they never damaged your reputation, you never repented of them. The bottom line is that you did your good works in public and your evil ones in secret. You should have done the opposite. You should have done your good works in secret so that your reward would have been my riches instead of the praise of people. And you should have aired your evil deeds in confession and repentance. Morgan looked down in shame as Christ closed Morgan Wilson's book of secrets and reached for the next one. Morgan Wilson's book of words. I see two categories of words in this book, he said. Those that reflected the attitude of your heart and those that hid the attitude of your heart. The two categories are sometimes paired. I mean, for example, when you were an employee, you flattered your supervisor in your salary review meeting and then at lunch on the same day, you told your co-workers that he was so dumb that if he was going to speak his mind, he would be speechless. <laughs> you hardly ever read your Bible. Yet you quoted from a list of scriptures you'd memorized to impress other church members. You spoke to your church's youth group about keeping their speech clean while you knew in your heart that your own jokes with your golfing buddies were not even fit for the gutter. Christ shook his head and he closed the book. I see that you have one more book to open, Morgan said. Is there any chance it might somehow override all that's been written in the other books? Jesus picked up the heavy volume. This is the book of life. The name of every person ever born has been entered into this book. Tragically, however, many of the names no longer appear. They have been blotted out. Please, Morgan said, please open that book and see if by some chance my name is still there. Jesus turned slowly through the pages, scanning each one, and finally he closed the volume and looked at Morgan sadly. I'm sorry to say to you that your name is not here. You do not belong to me, and I must banish you forever from my presence. But what about grace, Morgan said. Can't you give me grace? Morgan, my grace was always available to you. All you ever had to do was place your trust in me and make me the Lord of your life. Had you done that, my grace would have freely covered all of your sins and all of your failures. But you never did that. You never surrendered to me and allowed me into your heart. And therefore, you never knew me. And now, I do not know you. The angel led Morgan to another door, this one dark and ominous, on the far side of the great hall. There he was thrust into darkness. The door slammed behind him, echoing in the empty blackness. Morgan couldn't see anything, no sun, no moon, no stars, not a single ray of light. He groped about with his hands and tried to find footing for his feet, but there was nothing. 
Though he had no weight, he had the sensation of falling through the darkness, sensing no other presence but himself. He called out into the emptiness, but his voice seemed to get swallowed up. He heard nothing but the horrible sound of his own weeping. He was isolated from all humanity, and he would be so for all eternity. Morgan had lived for himself. He had made himself the most important entity in his life, and now in death he had been granted exactly what he'd always loved the best, the company of himself and nothing else forever. Ian's past and the forgotten soul of Morgan Wilson still plunged downward into the vast black void. He had decayed into something less than human, becoming nothing more than a perpetual hunger and an incessant wail. For all eternity he would writhe in despair, his torment never ceasing. He would never be reclaimed. He would never again have hope. The account of the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, in my estimation, is the most sobering passage in all of the Bible. It tells of the final judgment of the inhabitants of planet Earth. The last sentence of the passage is chilling. Revelation 20:15. Anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. You can't read that without realizing that what we do with our lives on this earth really matters. Almost all Christians that I've ever met have some idea about a future judgment when we will all stand before God. One of the most common beliefs is that he will evaluate our lives, our good works and our bad, and then like a high school teacher who's grading on the curve, he will decide who gets into heaven and who doesn't. But nothing could be further from the truth. God's program of judgment is far more sophisticated than that. Yes, a final judgment is coming. Of that we can be sure. Hebrews 9.27 puts it this way. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. At the great white throne judgment, unbelievers and Christian pretenders like Morgan Wilson in our story will stand before God. Here they will face the consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This judgment is the final bar of judgment in God's plan for the inhabitants of planet Earth, and there will be no grading on a curve. The accused will be judged by the black and white standard of absolute truth. Warren Wiersbe says that the white throne judgment will be nothing like our modern court cases. At the white throne there will be a judge but no jury, a prosecution but no defense, a sentence but no appeal. No one will be able to defend himself or accuse God of unrighteousness. As we go through these verses in Revelation chapter 20, as we have been doing in these other messages, we'll just give you a clear kind of tutorial on the great white throne. First of all, the place of it. Revelation 20:11 says, I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. The Bible does not specify exactly where the great white throne judgment will be. We do know where it will not be, however. It will not be in heaven, and it will not be on earth. It cannot take place on earth because at the appearance of the Lord, we are told that the earth and the heaven fled away. 
And it cannot take place in heaven because no sinner can enter the presence of God there. So the great white throne judgment takes place somewhere between heaven and earth, perhaps on some distant planet that we don't even know about. But it will take place. And perhaps the name of it is more important than its location. The word great speaks of the infinite one who is the judge. The word white speaks of divine holiness, purity, and justice. And throne speaks of the majesty of the one who has the right to determine the destiny of his creatures. The person of the great white throne judgment is given to us in verses 11 and 12. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, and I saw the dead standing before God. Who is the judge on the great white throne? He is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we discover this through our Lord's own words. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Paul wrote to the Romans, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. In Acts, Peter declared that Christ was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Christ is the judge of the living at the judgment seat of Christ when believers come before him after the rapture. He is the judge of the spiritually dead at the great white throne judgment. Jesus Christ will conduct the trial and no one is better qualified. He did all that he could do to redeem man. And if man rejects his offer, then man by Jesus must be judged. In verses 12 and 13, we learn about the people at the great white throne. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. As John views the great white throne, he sees the dead. All who died without a relationship with Jesus Christ, the dead who died without Christ, the spiritually dead, their bodies are summoned from their graves and from the sea, and their souls are called from death and Hades to stand before the judge of all the earth. And John says that this group will be made up of both small and great. That's an expression that appears often in the Bible and over five times in the book of Revelation alone. It's there to remind us that all classes of people will be present from all ranks in the church and in the world. There will be many religious people at the great white throne, philanthropists and preachers, miracle workers and lay people like the anti-hero in the story I told you a few moments ago. Erwin Lutzer says that this multitude is diverse in its religions. We see Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and Protestants and Catholics and Baptists and Presbyterians. We see those who believed in one God and those who believed in many gods. We see those who refused to believe in any God at all. We see those who believed in meditation as a means of salvation and those who believed in doing great deeds, that that was the path to eternal life. We see the moral and the immoral the priest as well as the minister, the nun as well as the missionary. What will happen to these religious people when they stand before God? 
Let the Lord Jesus answer that question. Many will say to me, he said in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Contrary to popular opinion, believing in your chosen truth does not make it true. There is only one truth, and that's the truth of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Believe in that truth, or you will not go to the Father. That's what he said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh the Father except through me. Cultural standing will mean nothing at the great white throne. Both the small and the great of this life will be there. The banker and the beggar, the prince and the pauper, the statesman and the scientist, the lawyer, the doctor, the professor, the author, the mechanic, the housewife, the bricklayer, the farmer, and the criminal. In the life in which we are now engaged, men have station. But before Jesus Christ, there will be no respect of persons. Although they will stand there en masse, they will be judged individually. The place of the great white throne and the person on the great white throne and the people before the great white throne. Notice now the purpose of the great white throne. Verse 12 says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books this verse tells us that when people are gathered before the throne of God books are opened in other words the evil works of the unsaved will be exposed every individual will be judged according to the book of life and the other books according to this text. And we're not told specifically what the other books are. We have some indication from other portions of the scripture about their contents and how they will be used to judge men and women at the great white throne. First of all, there's the book of the law. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day thought they could merit salvation through obedience to the law. And many Christians today make the same mistake. But as Paul points out, people cannot earn their salvation through the law unless they keep it perfectly, which we fallen human beings don't have a chance to do. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. You know why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anyone who stands before Christ the judge and claims to be justified by keeping the law will be condemned by the law only those who are in Christ will be found not guilty in the eyes of the law. I probably am not the only one that grew up in a kind of uh, legalistic environment. We had all the rules, you know, the filthy five, the dirty dozen, the nasty nine, all of those things that you weren't supposed to do. And the idea was if you don't do any of those things, then you're going to be fine. I want to tell you something, that's not going to matter at all. You will never be able to amass a record of enough good works or the lack of evil works to have a hope before the great white throne judgment. If you're thinking you're going to go to heaven by keeping the law, it never works. Hmm. 
And of course, the reason for that is the Bible says that in order to keep the law, you have to keep it all. If you break one law, you've broken the whole law. No one can do it. Only one ever did it, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have to go to heaven on the merit of someone else. You can't go on your own merit. That's such a hard thing for a lot of folks to understand because we're a meritocracy. We believe that we get what we deserve because we work hard for it. That doesn't work spiritually. The Bible says that heaven is a free gift. You get it because of the grace and mercy of Almighty God. You ask for His grace. You ask for His mercy, and He gives it to you, and you receive it as a gift from Him. I hope you do that if you haven't done so already. And we'll be back to talk some more about this tomorrow right here on This Good Station. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Signs, 31 Undeniable Prophecies of the Apocalypse, visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's new book, After the Rapture, An End Times Guide to Survival, which answers the question, what's next? It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James Versions available in a variety of attractive cover options. Get the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, Signs, right here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Are you looking for a simple way to talk with unbelievers about the end times? This month, for a donation of any amount, you can receive Dr. David Jeremiah's newest book, After the Rapture, An End Times Guide to Survival. And for $40 or more, you can receive two copies of this book to share with unsaved friends. Or for a generous donation of $85 or more, you'll also receive an additional booklet and DVD to help you refresh your knowledge of the end times. Go to davidjeremiah.ca to get your copy today. Take the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with Airship Genesis Legendary Bible Adventures from Turning Point. Tune in to our monthly audio adventures and join the Genesis Exploration Squad as they travel back in time to experience the stories of the Bible firsthand and discover life-changing lessons. Also available is the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible packed with the biblical content specifically written for kids from trusted Bible teacher, Dr. David Jeremiah. You can also download our Airship Genesis mobile game on your favorite smart device and play as your favorite characters in this puzzle adventure game as the squad experiences the life of Jesus firsthand. Just go to your app store and type the keywords Airship Genesis. For more details or to order a copy of the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible, visit our website at airshipgenesis.com Bible. That's airshipgenesis.com slash Bible. Looking in the self-help sections of online bookstores, you will find thousands of titles in every conceivable category of life. People hope that the next book they read will contain the answers they are looking for. Interestingly, nearly 400 years ago, a Christian philosopher named Blaise Pascal said, All the good principles already exist in the world. We just fail to apply them. 
and 1600 years before Pascal, the Apostle Paul wrote that the Word of God is able to thoroughly equip us for everything in life through instruction and correction. But instead of being a self-help book, the Bible is a God-help book. Even better. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's principles for living on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.